Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. We had a good week in my family. We took a few days off to go down south to hit the beach and uh, had a good time. Uh, once we got down there, it was so much fun. I, I really regretted we only took the week and we weren't going to miss any Sundays because, frankly, I like being here um, Sunday mornings. Um, but once we got there, the first day on the beach, Will got stung by a jellyfish on the foot. And then the second day, we went off on the, on the bay side of the island and, and did some snorkeling, and Will got a jellyfish right across his forearm, basically wrapped itself around his forearm. So um, he was not sad that we were only spending three days on the beach. Uh, we came home, but it was, it was good to be away, but it's good to be back. Always good to be with you. Always good to be in God's house. Uh, we are continuing this story of David's life. We're going to look at a little-known part of that story today, and, and we're looking at what happens when we make mistakes and how God can help us recover from those mistakes. The song that uh, Nathan and Catherine just sang before us, just the idea that God can take our brokenness and make it beautiful. That's what we're really talking about today. And by the way, speaking of that, every song we sang this morning was about God's grace. I don't know if you picked up on that or not. The words of all those songs are marvelous enough on their own. But when you've got really talented people who are leading you in those songs, you're really privileged. We are privileged to get to worship together in this place. So I, want, I just want to th say thank you to everybody who leads us here on Sunday mornings. So I got a book recently, and it's got kind of an interesting title. It's an older book. It's, it's 10, or, 10 or 20 years old. But the, the title just sort of sucked me in. The title is The Book of Heroic Failures. So it's stories of bad decisions, mistakes, uh, goofball moves that different people made and what happened. And here's one story from the book. So in 1978, British firefighters went on strike. And the British Army stepped up and said, okay, we'll fill in the gaps. We'll be the temporary firemen until this strike is broken. So one day, they got a phone call that there was a cat stuck in a tree. You know, the old cliche, this cat stuck in a tree. So the soldiers rushed to the scene, put up a ladder, brought down the cat, and handed it to the owner who was so grateful, she invited them all in for tea. And they had a wonderful time laughing and drinking and eating together. And then the firemen, the soldiers got in the fire truck and said goodbye and backed out over the cat. Now, we all make mistakes sometimes. We all make bad decisions once in a while. Sometimes our decisions are relatively harmless. You can laugh about them relatively soon. When you ordered those nachos with extra jalapenos and Diablo sauce, it sounded like a good idea. At dinner time, by two in the morning the next day, it did not seem like such a good idea. Then there are those mistakes you make that are not exactly lethal, but they're a little more painful. Like my friend, uh, true story, he was the director of the life group in his church for young adults. One Sunday, a new young couple comes to the class. He meets them at the door, wants to make sure they feel welcome. He's shaking hands with both. He's getting to know them. He looks down at the young lady and he says, oh, I see you're pregnant. When is your baby due? Yeah, some of you know. You've learned this much. Um, yeah, as Dave Barry says, never ask a woman if she's pregnant, even if you see a baby emerging from her at that moment. And the, the, the woman, when he asked this question, burst into tears and ran away. And the husband reluctantly followed. He never saw them again. Now, that's not the worst mistake anybody's ever made. They didn't exactly take him outside and shoot him. He did have to move out of state and change his name. But still, uh, those are, there are those kinds of mistakes. And then... Then there are the mistakes we make, the bad decisions 
the awful judgments, the sins we commit that unravel everything. One bad choice, one ill-timed word, one, one sin, and suddenly a, a relationship that's so important is, is gone. You've hurt someone and they'll never forgive you. One mistake and someone who doesn't know Christ, who is looking at you as the example of what a Christian is, suddenly they have no interest in following the God who created them because of what they see in you. These mistakes we make that we cannot, no matter what we try, we cannot undo them. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't fix it. So what do we do? Well, that's what this story is about. David makes one of those mistakes in chapter 27. We're not going to read 27. We're looking at 30 and the aftermath of his bad decision. But let me cover what David does. Because again, this is a very little known part of David's story. Remember, we are, for the past several weeks, we've been in this section of David's life between his anointing as Israel's next king and his becoming king. And what happens during that period of time, for the most part, is David is a fugitive. The king of the nation, Saul, is hunting David because he knows David is going to be his successor and he wants to kill him. He's jealous. David is spending most of the best years of his life, his teens, his early 20s, his 30s, or actually his, early, his teens and his 20s, uh, in, in, in misery, hiding in caves, running from place to place, experiencing narrow escapes from death. And finally, finally in chapter 27, he loses heart. None of us can blame him for this. I think any of us can understand. David finally says, okay, listen, I, I, I've just given up on the plan of God. He's going to catch me. Saul is going to catch me and he's going to kill me. I've got to get out of here. And so he runs to the last place you'd expect him to run. He runs to the Philistines, the ancient enemy of the Israelites. He runs to the king of Gath, Achish. We remember from last week, David tried to sneak in there at one point and was caught. This time he goes with his eyes up, with his head held high. He and his 600 men march into Gath and they say, listen, we are presenting ourselves to you. If you'll give us protection, we will not trouble you at all. And so what happens is Achish, the king of Gath, gives to David and his men a, a, a town called Ziklag down in the south. He says, you can live there. You just show up and help me whenever you can. So what David does, he begins to play a very dangerous game. He begins invading every once in a while, invading and raiding the towns of Amalek. Amalek is the nation to the south of Philistia and Israel. So down here's the Amalekites, they're enemies of both people. He'll go and he'll raid one of their towns. He'll kill everyone in the town so no one can tell the truth of what happened. He'll take all the treasure that he stole, the spoils of his victory, back to Gath, hand it over to King Achish and say, look, here's what I got from invading Judah, my homeland. And so Achish says to himself, wow, David really is on my side. He's invading his own people. They're, they're never going to receive him back. He really is on my side. So he's covering his tracks. He's enriching himself. He's allowing himself to be safe. And he's, I'm sure, rationalizing it by saying the Amalekites are our enemies. They, they terrorize us all the time. So I'm doing good for God, and I'm protecting myself. But he knows he's not doing right. He knows he's being deceptive. He carries this on for a year. And you know sooner or later it's going to catch up to him. It always does. And it happens when one day he gets word from Gath saying, we are going to invade Israel. Now show up and fight alongside of us. What's David going to do now? He and his men show up, armed and ready. 
In my opinion, what they're doing is they're trying to carry out their bluff as far as they have to to stay safe. Fortunately for David, when they show up for the battle, the other Philistine rulers look at them and say, those guys aren't fighting on our side. I won't fight beside them. They've, they've killed thousands of our people. How can we possibly trust them? They'll turn against us in the heat of battle. So they say to Achish, the king of Gath, send them home. Send them away. We won't fight with them. And so Achish sends them back to Ziklag. And I'm sure that David and his men breathed a sigh of relief that they weren't going to actually have to fight against their own people. And as they're marching home, as they come over the horizon, they come over the hill, they see in the distance the town of Ziklag burning. See, the Amalekites that David has been picking on for the last year have decided to come back and fight back, have decided to strike back at their tormentor. They have invaded and have raided Ziklag and have burned it to the ground. And all of the wives and children of all of David's soldiers are gone. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 4. David is finally paying the consequences of his bad choice. Verse 4 says, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. What a poignant picture of grief. I'm sure some of you can identify. In verse 6 it says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So here's David, who is a hero, and yet he doesn't look very heroic here, does he? The very men who he has led for years, who have pledged themselves to him, who've been loyal so far, now they want to kill him. Where do you go when your bad decision means you've lost your family, the people most close to you, most special to you? Where do you go when you've wept until there's no more strength to weep? Where do you go when the people who once trusted you now want to kill you? Where do you go when your own tribe, the tribe of Judah, considers you a traitor? See, the rest of the chapter shows us a perfect example of how to recover from a bad decision. And let's just stop before we get into it and admit we've all done it. We've all made terrible choices. We've all made big mistakes. We've all spoken when we should have kept quiet. We've all kept quiet when we should have spoken. We've all let our appetites and our lusts control us at times when we should have been men and women of self-control. We've all been there. Some of you probably in a room this size, odds are there are some of you who are right in the aftermath of a bad decision right now. You are right now experiencing the consequences. Others of us here, our bad decisions may be further in the past, but we can still remember them and we still suffer from them. And we'd rather not think about them. And all of us have, I hate to say it, bad decisions in our future because we're human. Because I don't know if you realized this when you walked into this place, but this is not a museum for perfect people. This is a hospital for broken people. We've got bad decisions in our future. What do we do? What do we do? Well, the first thing David does is the first thing we should do. Run to God. I love what it says at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. You can just see him thinking to himself, well, I've got no place else to go. My family's gone, and it's my fault. My men have turned against me. Again, my fault. I can't go home. People of Judah think I'm a traitor. There's only one person in the universe who still believes in me, and that's my heavenly Father. And the fortunate thing is, I know He always will be. Always will believe in me. Always will receive me home. 
You know, when John Newton wrote that song, Amazing Grace, I wonder if he knew how powerful that song would be over the years to come. How many times people would sit there and say, I need a God who believes in me in spite of what I've done, who saves even a wretch like me. Those words are still true today. Those so, words are so powerful. It's such a simple song, but it speaks so powerfully because all of us need to know that God is going to be there for us. Robert Wise is a pastor in another state, and he tells of a time on a Monday morning when he got a phone call from a friend of his. And the friend didn't introduce himself, didn't announce himself or say, hey, it's me. He just said, hello, this is God. I have a gift for you today. I give you the gift of failure. Today, you do not have to succeed. I grant that to you, and then hung up. And Robert Wise said, man, that was weird. But the more he thought about it, the more he thought, you know, that's really considerate. You know, Monday mornings are pretty tough for a lot of pastors because you do a lot of second guessing of yourself on Mondays. You look back on Sunday and think, well, I thought this was going to go this way, but it didn't go that way. Or I, I, I thought I had a really good sermon prepared and it just didn't work out the way I thought it would. And people fell asleep and people didn't get it. And I just, it's a time of questioning yourself. And so to get a call like that on a Monday morning, he thought, man, my friend really, really gets me. And then he thought further, and he thought, no, he, he was doing more than that. He was sharing with me the gospel. The gospel that's true not just for pastors, but for every human being on earth, which is that God never changes. His love for us never fails. That on the day you make the biggest mistake of your life, God loves you exactly the same way He loved you on the day you came home to Him for the first time. That God could not be more proud of you than He is right now. That God could not be more happy to have you in His family than He is right now. That's the message of the most famous story Jesus ever told. The parable of the prodigal son. You think about it, here's a story of a guy who disgraces his family in a culture where honor is everything. He has brought supreme dishonor upon his father. He has wasted the family fortune. And now he wants to come home? You know, I've often thought in the story, if I'm the prodigal and I'm walking down that road toward my home and I see my dad running toward me, I'm going to take off and run the other way, assuming he's coming to get me. But instead, what is the father running for? He's running to get to his son quicker. Oh, you've decided to come home? This is what I've been praying for. This is what I've been hoping for. I want to welcome you home. And in, in a normal story, if it's not about God, in, the, in that story, the father comes and he says, okay, I want a list of all the bad things you've done. Don't hide anything from me. Tell me all of them. And now explain to me why you made that choice. Explain to me why you did this thing. But he doesn't do that. In a normal story, he would say, okay, I've got a 13-point a plan for how you can make things right with me. Here's how you can repay me the money you lost. Here's how you can... How you can uh, Exalt me in society. You can honor me in front of the village so everybody will look at me with honor again. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, my son who was lost has been found. My son who was dead is now alive. Let's celebrate. And the best part of the story is Jesus is saying, that's what God is like. And you think about it, nobody knew that's what God was like before Jesus came along. Think about that for a minute. Even the prophets of the Old Testament, in our, in our Bible reading plan, we're just now getting into those prophetic books. As wise as they were, as much insight as they had, they knew more about God than any other humans on earth. And yet even they never communicated God's character the way Jesus did. 
It took God himself to become human, to come down and say, you want to know what I'm like? I'm like a, a, a father who can overlook any sin as long as his child comes home. So you run to that God. He's not like, I mean, and we're not that way in regular life, and so we have a hard time wrapping our minds around grace. If you go to a restaurant today after church and the waiter spills a whole tray of food on your lap, are you going to give that restaurant a second chance? Probably not. If you've got an employee, you're in a management position, and tomorrow your employee is late to work, and you reprimand them, and they respond by dog cussing you in front of all your other employees, does that employee get a second chance? Probably not. But God's not that way. God's mercy is forever. It's unfailing. You run to Him. When there's no place else to run, you run to Him. Secondly, you let Him help you make it right. Because being forgiven is glorious. And it's reason to give God the praise and the glory, but that's not the end of the story. Being right with God is a miracle, but God doesn't want you to stop there because the bad decision you and I have made has hurt other people. It's impacted people around us. And we have to love those people well. And that means taking steps to make reparations, to reconcile. I have a friend who experienced something terrible when he was a young teenager. One night, his mom came home and said to him, listen, come with me. And they went to confront his father. The, the mom knew that her husband, my friend's dad, had been cheating on her with another woman. And she'd finally had enough. And she was going to confront them. I, I don't know to this day why she brought her son with her. But they walked through the door, the front door of that home, the home where this woman lived. And my friend, a young teenager, 13, 14, 15 years old, I can't remember exactly, walks through the door and sees his dad in the home of this other woman. How devastating is that? And then my friend's father, his response to his exposure, I should say, is he got up from the couch, did not say a word, did not make eye contact, walked out to the front yard, got in his car and drove away. And my friend didn't see his dad again until he was an adult with kids of his own. And that's how we tend to respond when we fail. Walk away from it. Turn our backs on it. Just never look back. Never address it. Never confront it. Just walk away. Put it in the past. It's too painful to talk about. It's too painful to think about. After all, everybody's failed, right? David doesn't do that. Comes back to Ziklag. His family is gone. Everyone else's family is gone. The, the, the city's been burned. All their possessions are gone. Now they are bereft of everything. David could say, oh well, I guess I failed you. See you later. But no, David says, let's get our families back. But David's not Liam Neeson in Taken. He doesn't just say, all right, let's go. He knows there's a step to take first. Verse 8 of chapter, chapter 30. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? See, it's not as simple as just charging into Amalekite territory because that's a vast area. Where are they going to be? 
We don't know. He needs the guidance of God. Plus, he needs to know, if I go charging in, me and my soldiers on our horses, are they going to kill our wives and children? Are we going to be able to rescue them? God gives him the answer. He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and the 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Remember those 200, okay? We're going to come back to them later. So emotionally spent from weeping, from grief, that they can't march another step and they can't participate in this rescue operation. So what happens is David and his men get into Amalekite territory. They find a guy laying in a field who's obviously sick, who's near death. Uh, they, They revive him. They give him some food. They nurse him back to health. Turns out he is a slave of one of the Amalekite soldiers who says, thank you for saving my life. I will guide you to where they took your families. So that's where we pick up the story in verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So this Amalekite band has been in David's territory and has come into Philistine territory. So there's lots of people they've victimized. Verse 17 says, And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day. This is a 24-hour battle. They do not stop to rest. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Skip down to verse 19. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Now, I cannot promise you that when you make a mistake and you go to try to make things right, that everything's going to turn out perfectly like it did for David. You won't necessarily be able to reverse your bad decision like he was able to. In fact, most of the time it won't be quite that neat and tidy. But God has a plan. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. God knows the steps you should take. And I know, I know it's hard to know how to hear God's voice. Notice it doesn't say that God spoke to David audibly. We don't know exactly how God spoke. God speaks in a variety of ways. But in order to hear His voice, in order to have His guidance, you have to be in His presence. You have to spend time in prayer just saying, Lord, I need You. Show me the way. You have to spend time around wise men and women who you know, who are known to make good decisions and say, what would you do if you were in my shoes? Do you have any advice for me? God can speak through them. You have to be in his word. We've challenged you this year to read the entire Bible in this year, and and hopefully you've been part of that. If you haven't, pick it up today. Start today. The reading plan is out there on the all-in table. And I'm not promising you that every time you open the book, you'll read something that says, oh, this is what I should do. That applies to your specific questions. But every day you'll read God's Word and you'll learn some more about Him and you'll grow closer to Him and you'll grow in wisdom and wise people know how to make right choices. So let Him help you make things right. Don't be content with where you are in relationship to the people you've hurt. Take steps to reconcile. Number three, go the extra mile. See, the reason I say this is because we have a tendency... When we've hurt someone else, we have a tendency to sort of set terms on their forgiveness. We have a tendency to say, okay, 
I've said I'm sorry, now it's your turn to forgive me. Or I, I've, I've done this, I've taken these steps to show you that I knew I did wrong, now it's your turn to show mercy to me and to make everything right. And I've talked to people, I've counseled with people before who've said to me, Jeff, I don't get it. Why can't she forgive me? Why won't he get over this? And all I can say is, I don't know. I'm not them. But it's not your job to tell them when it's their time to forgive. It's your job to go as far as you have to go. See, David does two very wise things in the aftermath of this significant victory. Number one, remember those 200 men who he left behind at the brook because they were too tired to cross? On the way back, he's got all this spoil. Basically, he has, he has gained the property of dozens of different villages that the Amalekites have been invading. Not just his own property, but the property of hundreds, maybe thousands of other people. And his soldiers say, we're not sharing any of this stuff with those 200 who didn't fight. They can have their wives and children back, but they don't get any of the property because they didn't earn it. And David says, no, that's not the way we're going to be. We're going to share everything equally. They're part of our army. They're going to share in the victory too. Now, David doesn't have to do this. This is not a political move. He's already got the loyalty of his men back. They're already so um, completely won over that they say, David, if you want all the spoil, you can have it. David doesn't do this because he has to. He does it because it's the right decision. Because it's fair. Because it, it makes for a healthy community. David's already made a bad decision. He's going to start making good ones now. The second thing he does is he takes his share of the spoil and he sends it to Judah. Judah is the part of Israel that he's from. This is his home tribe. For the last year, they've been hearing the propaganda from Jerusalem or from Saul that says, hey, David, your favorite son is a traitor. I guess you can turn your backs on him now. And he sends this spoil, this treasure, to the villages of Judah saying, remember when the Amalekites took this from you? I brought it back to you. Here's a little extra. Here's my share. This is his way of saying, listen, I know I let you down, but I want you to know I'm back. And if you'll support me, I'm there for you. And the part of the story we're not looking at right now is that invasion that the Philistines were getting ready to execute, it happens in chapter 31, and Saul and his sons are killed. The army of Israel is destroyed on the, on the mount, in the battle of Mount Gilboa. And David is crowned king of Judah, his home tribe, and seven years later becomes king of all of Israel. And I'm telling you, none of that would have happened if David wouldn't have done everything he could to make up for his mistake. If he hadn't re-earned the trust of his people. Man, if I could go back in time, if I could meet my friend's dad who ran out on his family, if I could go back in time to that day he was confronted, I'd say to him, listen, I know you feel ashamed. And I know it would be easier just to leave here and make a new life. But it's worth it to fight for your family. And it's not going to be easy but you need to do whatever you have to do to re-earn their trust. If I were him, I, if, I, if I were there, I would tell him, listen, go to your wife and say, I'm never seeing that woman again. Never. I'll sleep on the couch. If you won't let me back in the house, I'll get an apartment down the street so I can be as close as possible. If you want money, I'll give you every dollar I've got besides what it takes to feed me. 
if you want, I'll let you, I'll let you look at every phone bill so you can see what kind of phone calls I'm making. I'll, I'll, I'll let you show up at my work whenever you want. I'll never once say, hey, I need some privacy. I need time alone. If they send me on a trip out of town, I'll get an extra hotel room so you can come with me. I want to do whatever I have to do to show you I will never do something like that again. And even if you do all those things, there's no guarantee she'll ever fully forgive or totally trust, but at least you've done everything you could. And at least in the effort you've shown your kids, we have a dad who loves us. We're important to him. We matter. He's doing what he can. He's human. He's failed. We can forgive him. He loves us. And that would make all the difference. There are people in this room, I have no doubt, there are people in this room who know there are steps you need to take and you've been holding back. Steps you need to take to bring about reconciliation. Steps you need to take to say, I may not be completely at fault, but I know I messed up. And I hope you'll forgive me. We can never make anybody forgive us, but have we done everything we can? Go the extra mile. It's worth it. And meanwhile, know that there's a God who's on your side, who's doing things you can't even see, who's making your failures into beautiful things. We all know Romans 8.28, right? If, you're, if you've been in church at all or, or read the Bible at all, you've heard this verse. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And that verse has been said so many times, it's cliche, and we make it into what it doesn't really mean, which is, oh, well, everything turns out great in the end, and that's not really what the verse says. But I heard a story about a pastor whose son, whose teenage son committed suicide. And in the aftermath of that awful, awful tragedy, he was left with the responsibility of preaching his son's funeral. And as he got up and spoke, he quoted that verse and he said, I'll be honest with you, I've known this verse my whole life, I've loved it, I've preached on it, but I've had a hard time this week reconciling that verse with what happened with my son, with this terrible decision my son made that has just destroyed every one of us. How, how can this be good? How can God turn this into something good? How can anything good come out of this? And he said, I, I keep thinking about a shipbuilder. He said, I'm not a shipbuilder. I'm not an engineer. I don't even, I'm not even a sailor, but I've been on a boat before. And I know that the stuff on boats doesn't float. I mean, if you take off the wheel, the captain's wheel, you throw it in the ocean, it sinks. You you take off the rudder, you throw it in the ocean, it sinks. You, you pull off one of those welded plates that makes up the hull, you throw it in the water, it goes to the bottom. So how can all these heavy things float? The shipbuilder knows something I don't. Somehow he's able to fit all those pieces together in such a way that not only when the whole ship is complete, not only does it not sink, it's able to carry us from place to place to cross oceans, to go from continent to continent. In the same way, if you take my son's suicide, you take it out of context and you just say, is this a good thing? Absolutely not. There's nothing good about it. It sinks to the bottom of the ocean. But if I give it over to God, if I let Him weave it into, weld it into the plan of my life, He didn't ordain it, He didn't cause it to happen. He doesn't approve of it. He weeps alongside me, and yet he's not defeated by it. He's able to take a tragedy like this, the d bad decisions I make, the awful things that happen in this world, weave it all together. And when I get to my ultimate destination someday, I'll be able to look back and say, I now see what God was able to do. 
I now understand how he was able to take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it into good. We have to trust that our God can take our failures and he can make them float. And we know this is true because the best thing that ever happened to any one of us at the time it happened, looked like the worst tragedy in human history because God had become a man, had come into this world, had walked a mile in our shoes, had, had taught us the greatest truths that have ever been spoken, had lived a perfect life, had loved people perfectly, and then we took him and we killed him. What could be worse than that? Not only did we kill him, we rejected him, we tortured him, we mocked him, we despised him. But while that was happening, he was taking all of our foolishness and our mistakes and our cruelty and our selfishness and our rage, and he was taking it all upon himself, and he was eating it so that it would be gone forever, and he was paying the price eternally for our mistakes. And when he cried out, it is finished, his last words that was our victory he was winning with his defeat. And everybody who knew him on that day grieved and they said, we'll never see him again. The world will never be the same again. But three days later, they knew a different story. Three days later, they saw no mistake is ever fatal. No sin is ever final. Evil does not have the last word. Condemnation is not forever when you're in Jesus Christ. We take our sins, our mistakes, our bad decisions to him, and we watch him work a miracle. That's what he loves to do.